Good morning. We continue our study in the book of Luke. And you can turn, if you've got a pew Bible, that blue book, you can turn to page 865 to find our passage. It's Luke 8, beginning with verse 26. Luke 8, 26. title in our pew Bible is Jesus heals a man with a demon. This comes on the heels of Christ calming the storm. And in that great act of power and lordship, this one follows. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. This means that they went to a Gentile area. The first time Jesus has been to a Gentile area. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So... He got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us as we study your word, as we consider this passage that reveals your glory, your power, your goodness, and how desperately we need that, Lord. Bless us to see your beauty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, in 1902, Arthur Conan Doyle 
wrote another of his novels about Sherlock Holmes. And while I've never read this novel, the memory of the movie based on it is ever imprinted on my mind. It was probably the greatest fear I had as a child as a result of this movie. So as would happen in this movie, you're on the moor in Scotland, in England, and it's dark and you're walking along and you hear in the distance. Right. Then the person sees with panic. They start running. They start running. And then suddenly they stop and you hear you never see it, but you hear and you realize that whatever howled is now right in front of them. And then things go a bit blank and you hear the, the growling of the dog and the screams of the person. And a few hours later, a body is found. It's the hound of the Baskervilles. So I always think of that when I think of this, when I come to this passage. Just imagine, as was the case perhaps many times, you're walking along this particular stretch of road that goes by the lake where the tombs are located, embedded into the hillside. And you're there with a few friends, and you're there way too late. You shouldn't have been there at that time. Shouldn't have been out past 12, right? So you're walking along, and you're hoping you're going to get by. You're a little nervous, and then you hear this scream in the distance. You pick up the pace. You start running, and suddenly... And the moonlight outbreaks this bloody naked man that beats you and your friends into the ground. And then you go stumbling and limping into town, all bloody and busted up. The man of the garrisons. <laughs> That's what it was like around there. This man possessed by these demons, driven out into the desert, as Luke says. You imagine running and screaming and trying to get away from the haunted house, but you can't because you are the haunted house. It's within you. And another of the gospels says that he would cut himself on stones, probably in self-hate and despair, brutalizing his own body, probably full of infection and, and fever. And, of course, as as Mark describes it, he shattered these chains. He had this superhuman strength. He couldn't be controlled. He couldn't control himself. And he was fixed in the tombs, lived in the tombs as a symbol of his being cut off from the living, that he was practically dead already. This man of the Gerasenes, it was... Now, a dangerous neighborhood, right? Now, it's easy for us to look at this man and and, and separate ourselves, not realize what's really being said here or how we should read it. It's kind of like an experience I had recently, and I'm changing the name in case this woman ever listens to a sermon here or comes one day. Who knows? But we'll call her. She was a lady from another country in a store uh, I'm going to call her Rosita from Spain, but it was a different, and it, and, and we're going to say it was Steinmark, but it wasn't Steinmark. It wasn't Rosita. So I'm bringing this stuff back to 
Francis Dimart and things we had gotten uh, uh, earlier. We, we didn't need them. And we're just sitting there and she's tabbing it up and just working, you know. And then suddenly she says, I would never cut your beard. And I'm like, ah, you know, yeah, I think it looks pretty good too, you know. <clears throat> nice compliment, you know, and just out of the blue, this lady just basically saying, you look really good with that beard, you know. <laughs> I would never shave it. I mean, that's what I was thinking. Until I realized I had given her my license that has my face without the beard. So what she is saying, you are so ugly. I would never let your face be seen again. Please, for all of our sake, keep the beard. You know, that's really what she was saying, right? So as you read this, you're, you and I are very likely to separate ourselves out from the demoniac. He was affected by demons were not affected by demons. But it may surprise you how much the scripture talks about our interaction with demonic forces if we are apart from God. And our constant struggle and engagement with demonic forces even though we do belong to God. It actually says in Timothy that we uh, were, that, that those who are apart from God are under the control of satanic forces. It says in Ephesians 2 that they are working in us. This is the interesting thing. You have a choice as to who's going to be working in you. Are you going to be submitted to good spiritual forces, that is, God himself? Or are you going to be submitted to evil forces? Because, see, when Adam and Eve abandoned God, whose arms do you think they went into? It was only one set of arms. And he was manifested there in the serpent ran into the serpent's arms. And that's where we are. In fact, the whole world apart from God. As John says in his little letter, the whole world lies in the hands of the evil one. The whole world. You know, it doesn't mean that all of creation or that the whole universe, God is in control. But he's saying the whole world of people turned against God lie in the hand of the evil one. He is working in them. The, the exact phrase in Timothy is they were bound to do his will. Bound. See, enslaved. That language is used of sin. We were enslaved by sin. Enslaved by the enemy. Bound to do his will. How, how strong could that be? And it's, it's so personal. Jesus could say of the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Now, there's something about being born by that one, but this likely refers to the fact that you follow your father. You have the family image. You have the family character of your father. 
And bear in mind, to belong to Satan is easier than you think. <laughs> just, just do your will. That's what he would have. Just push God to the outside. Let him be a thing in your life, but not the thing. Let him be just one of the things you think about, but not the one who governs your life. That's what he wants. That means you belong to him. When Christ is not supreme, when you have not entrusted yourself helplessly to Christ, to depend upon him for life and salvation, then, sadly, you belong to the enemy. So, you see, in reading this, we have to see that in all of these cases, it's a picture of what God does in salvation, what Christ does in salvation. And it's one of the most important things because it says in 1 John, he came to destroy the works of the devil. How like this is that statement in John? And John's not talking particularly about demonic possession, that he came to destroy the works of the devil in demonic possession as, as this is described. No, in the wide sense of that word, however the Satan has controlled people and owns people and however they're bound to do his will. However, it could be said of them, you are of your father, the devil, that he is working in them and they have the family likeness. He's come to destroy the work of the devil. He's come to set them free. He's come so that they would no longer belong to him. And that's why specifically Paul says, we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. See? Destroying the work of the devil is to deliver you out of that kingdom and to put you in the kingdom of Jesus. That's really, in one sense, it's the whole of the word of God. That he comes to rescue his people from the dragon, his bride from the dragon. He came, and and John means this as a summary statement in a way. It kind of covers everything from one perspective. He came to destroy the works of the devil. So you see, we can't separate ourselves out. We can't distance ourselves from this. He's he's got the license and he's looking at our face. (laughs) This is you. This is me. This is our plight. So that first question that I asked there, do you see yourself in the the demoniac? And that means, do you see your own helplessness apart from the mighty Christ? That's a vital part of it. In fact, a willingness, uh, maybe even a comfort or freedom to admit your helplessness. That by nature, you and I are bound by evil. We're bound by things beyond our control. We're bound by habits and addictions and influences and powers that are beyond our control. There's a kind of freedom to be able to cry out and say, save me. Save me from these forces, the force of the sin and the world's influence in my life and in my own desires and the enemy that is governing all of it. Oh, Lord, rescue me. 
You are just as helpless as this man by nature. You're just as bound spiritually as this man is or was. Do you see yourself in a demoniac? Then the second question is, do you see yourself in the townspeople? Their reaction is a surprise and a a tremendous disappointment. It says that they saw, in this famous phrase, you, you probably heard this phrase a lot or used it. He was clothed and in his right mind. And you think, oh, that's where that came from, right? But what's their reaction? They were afraid. Scared him to death. And it says everybody, like everybody in the city, everybody in the country, they all come together. They have a joint verdict. We all agree on this, Jesus. We're all going to say it. I represent everybody here to the man. Please leave. Get out of here. We don't want you here. Why? They were seized with great fear. And I love the matter of fact way that Luke says this. So he got on the boat and returned. (laughs) Nothing more to be done. Reminds you of those passages that says he could do no miracles or very few acts of power because of their unbelief. Here he just turns around and leaves. So do you see yourself in the townspeople? Are you pushing Jesus away because of fear? Their particular fear is really not explained. Like some have said, well, it's because of the pigs and the loss of property and possessions. And who knows what else he may do? Well, that's true in one sense. Who knows what this powerful Jesus might do in your life? That's, that's a pretty good concern, actually. Because he is going to do a lot in your life. He could turn a lot of things upside down. I know we all have that classic fear. You might send me to Africa. You know, it's always Africa. It seems like not. He might send me to Paris to be a missionary. And if you think God gives you what you don't want, then you play like you don't want to go to Paris. Right. That's the way that works. But what is your fear? What's the, what's the makeup of that fear? You, you really may fear that this Christ, if I let him have my life, my life is over. I know it's going to be downhill after that. I know I'm not going to have the fun I used to have. I'm not going to have the pleasures I used to have. I'm not going to be able to enjoy the things I used to enjoy in the hands of this must-be ogre from heaven, right? That was a lot of my thinking. As I sat in the choir in the Methodist church growing up, and I couldn't wait till service was over so I could get home and watch NFL football. Couldn't wait. Please. Not another altar call. That was my attitude. That's the way I responded. And I couldn't understand at the time 
what riches, what amazing confrontation of the living God could be mine if I was even listening to what was being said and how it would overshadow any other pleasure in this world. In fact, it would highlight every other pleasure and bring those pleasures of creation and culture into the presence of God so that they exploded with a new meaning. Couldn't imagine that. No, it's going to all be over. That's what I was scared of. I was scared that this God would never be happy with me. He'd never be satisfied with me. I could never please him. I could never be good enough. I can't repent enough. I can't believe enough. I can't do enough to keep up with this God and to be the kind of person he'd want me to be. I'm just taking myself out of the game. Better not to even try than to get into that treadmill of trying to be this person that God wants me to be. I'll just back out now. And then to find out as I was struggling to get all of my good things arranged before God so that he would like me. And then God just suddenly sweeps it all off the table and says, nothing you ever done makes any difference whatsoever as to whether I'm going to love you or not. And he puts the beauty and righteousness of Jesus on the table and says, I will love you in him. How about that? That was the giant relief of my life. Because I was that person, and many of you have heard me say this in the New Members class, I was that boy that prayed the Lord's Prayer every night just in case I died that night and that might tip the balance and I would go to heaven instead of hell. Really? That's how I lived. And the thought of getting closer to this God who is so terrible just scared me to death. And so God realizes that the reason we left him in the first place in Adam and Eve's sin was we didn't think he was worth trusting. We didn't think he was worth being, giving our lives to. So we abandoned him, ran in the arms of the enemy who promised us happiness. And we've been suspicious ever since of his goodness. That's why he comes to us in the person of Christ to say, I am trustworthy. You can entrust your life to me. There is nothing to fear. All of my ways towards you are gracious and merciful. I only will pursue you with goodness and mercy all your days. I will only do you good. I will rejoice over you to do you good. Those are the promises. So don't be a townsperson. Don't send Jesus away, as it were. Don't declare to him, you are not worthy. You're not worthy to be in my land. You're not worthy to have my life. Which means you're not trustworthy, you see. It means... You're not good enough. You're not powerful enough. You're not wise enough for me to put my life into your hands. So do you see yourself in the demoniac? Do you see yourself in the townspeople? And then finally, do you see yourself as a part of the kingdom of God? Wonderfully, of course, uh, 
Jesus delivers this man. The, the confrontation is, is really cosmic. Because as we get further in, we realize he's not dealing with one demon, but he's dealing with maybe thousands. A, a legion is many thousands of men. We don't know if he did, probably doesn't mean that literally, but many, as Luke says. And the number is given in a different gospel of 2,000 pigs. So maybe at least 2,000. I don't know if we went two for one in that or whatever, but 2,000 pigs were possessed. So swarming like, you know, a sewer with cockroaches. These de- demons controlling him and ruling him. And yet as, they, as Jesus comes to them, this person who was uncontrollable and breaking chains suddenly goes into begging mode. He knows, they know, they are in trouble. Immediately. And they're crying out, don't send us into the abyss. And the idea is, in the final day, they know they're going to be sent into the abyss. A lot of people don't believe in hell. Demons do, right? They shudder, James tells us. They shudder as they think about what, who God is and what's going to happen to them. So they see Jesus, and it's like a man who's on death row and... He knows he's got six months. They're making appeals and hopefully it's going to be delayed and hopefully it'll be rescinded. And suddenly midnight, they walk into his cell and they're coming to take him to the electric chair or take him to be to get his shot that night. And it's like, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. You're coming to take me away now. That's the sense here. Like, is it already over? Don't send us into the abyss. That's how helpless they were. That's how scared they were. They had no recourse whatsoever. It wasn't a discussion. It was a begging time, right? Please don't do that to us. And strange as it seems, they asked to be uh, to go into the pigs, anything but the abyss. And the pigs visibly show demonstrate that they are possessed by these demons and they rush into the water to their death. We don't know were the demons caught in the water, what happened, we don't know. Obviously Jesus allowed that for his purposes. One, it was part of the confrontation to the townspeople. It was also a demonstration clear demonstration that the demons had left the man and had gone into the the pigs. It was a demonstration of the great power that Jesus was dealing with that could do this. We just went to our granddaughter's pig presentation uh, at the Fort Worth Stock Show. And these pigs, there were like 40 of them in this one pen, just one of many classes. And those were big, big pigs. And you think of thousands of those pigs running down. I mean, that, was, that had to be an amazing event that nobody ever forget. You remember the time those pigs ran into the water? Yeah, man. You know, just huge. Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew the, the cataclysmic event that it would create to demonstrate his power at that moment. But this was to, this, this man so uncontrollable. Here he is 
sitting at Jesus' feet. He's in the position of a disciple. Submissive, under perfect self-control, giving himself up to Christ. Wow, that's incredible. The power of Christ to confront not one, but thousands. And you get the sense, it wouldn't have mattered if the whole demon host was there. They're out. He controls them by a wish, by a, by a command. There's no limit to this one's power. Now, I'm going to say this as an understatement, but I hope it has some effect. One of our favorite movies is Coal Miner's Daughter. Cece Spachick, Tommy Lee Jones. So, they got married. He's come in, uh, coal dust on his face. And he has this book with him. Things have not been going so well, let's say, in the intimate area with the two of them. So he's got this book and he brings it in, he hands it to her. And he says, she says, dude, what is this? Sissy Spacey, you know, a great Southern accent. What is this? Dude, it's got pictures like that. He says, in one of the great quotes, we use it all the time. Honey, that book's helped people the world over. I thought it might do us some good. (laughs) Something about that, just love it. Thought it might do us some good. Now, here's my use of that statement. This Jesus, who brings 2,000 demons out of this man who is uncontrollable, tortured, and now he's clothed and in his right mind, and as we will see, wants to give himself up to Jesus. He might do you some good. You think? You think he might do you some good? You think he might change your life? You think he might deal with your sin and your fears and your unbelief and your worship and your prayer and your time in God's word and your relationship to your spouse and all the things that you struggle with? You think he might do you some good? That's what it means to be a part of his kingdom. It's to be like this man, helpless but rescued. Helpless but on the road to rescue. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Begging to be taken with Jesus. And that's another surprise. Jesus doesn't let him go with him. But he sends him. This one who was alienated from his community, cut off, estranged from his community. Now he's commissioned. He's been commissioned to go to his community, restored, and now he's the instrument of good to his community. Of all the people, if you had gone all throughout that land and you just pointed your finger and said, I wonder who's likely to trust in Jesus. I wonder who's likely to be an ambassador. That's the last person you'd pick. Bottom of the, you would not pick him. Say, well, we got a plan to stay away from that guy. You know, no, no, he's the guy. He's the evangelist. He's the messenger. And you get a sense of what the message is to people. It's the message, what does he say, of what great things God has done for you. How has he helped your marriage? 
How does he help you through difficulty? How does he help you in suffering? How does he help you with your guilt? How does he help you with your hope of the future? What great things has he done for you? We're all evangelists in that regard, right? And in that sense, to belong to his kingdom means to be just another helpless person who has been rescued, is being rescued, and now is being used in other people's lives to tell them about this great God who has rescued you. So, do you see yourself as a part of this kingdom? And realize, too, that this manifestation, like the manifestation of the healings, it is a picture, yes, of how he rescues us, a picture of his power in our lives, but it's also a picture of the final stage of the kingdom. That is, he will bring healing to this world. There will all, quote, leprosy of this world and paralysis of this world and demon possession of this world. Everything will be healed and evil will be removed from this world. Don't you want to be a part of that kingdom? Part of the kingdom that remains when all other kingdoms are destroyed? The part of this rescuing kingdom as it moves forth in this world in darkness, of darkness? And to be a part of that final kingdom when all evil is removed from the earth. This is a little microcosm of what he will do in that last day. Don't you want to be a part of that kingdom? That's what Luke sets before us. And as Ryan has said, the whole point is the confrontation, this encounter with Jesus. What about him makes you want to follow him? What about him in that's presented here would keep you from following him? Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we honor you. We lift you up as you are presented so majestically in this passage. We stand in awe, Lord, of your great power over the greatest spiritual forces there are. Your great compassion over this man so lost. This man who is unclean, who others would only keep their distance from. And yet you came to him. You ministered to him. You embraced him. You rescued him. Oh, Lord. What compassion. What power. What transforming power. Lord, we, we all know. The grip that evil can have on our own hearts. Even as believers were shocked. Shocked so many times at how, how we can fall into such evil thought at least. And sometimes so much more. How we continue to need you and rest in you as our constant deliverer from the evil one. Even as we prayed in the Lord's prayer, deliver us From the evil one. You put that prayer on our lips. Deliver us from the power of the evil one. Lord, may we always be that dependent, that helpless, but that expectant, that confident. The greatness of the power of our precious Lord Jesus. 
Oh, Lord, make us a part of your kingdom. Rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of your dear son. No longer to belong to the one whose arms we ran into. But now we belong to the Lord of history. The Lord and Savior of all men. Oh, Lord, enable us to give ourselves to you. For Jesus' sake, amen.